This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, thanks to everybody who you know worked to put this conference together. Um, I'm really glad to get to talk to everybody. Um, and what I wrote the book about, uh, Elite Capture, is you know something that I feel like in a lot of the panels, you know, we've all been kind of responding to just where we're at in terms of class consciousness, in terms of political consciousness in general and trying to sort through what's good and what's bad about where we're at. So, you know, I am responding to that from a sort of intellectual perspective. Um, but just, you know, to keep it a buck, like, I'm also coming at it from my own commitments, my own history, right? Uh, so. You know, I would think of myself as a pan-Africanist and an eco-socialist, and that comes from somewhere. Right? It, it comes from not just opinions about what's true or opinions about philosophy or opinions about politics, but it comes from, you know, the actual history that, you know, put me on a trajectory to developing, you know, wherever I'm at politics-wise. And so on the one hand, you know, I'm, I've seen the same things that you all have seen in movement spaces and a number of people at different panels have talked about this, you know, people using appeals to identity to paper over unprincipled behavior or uh, wage interpersonal fights or people um, having kind of staunch views against solidarity or against working across identities, right? These are things that you know, like I've been saying, I think we're all kind of responding to. Um, and one route of response has been to just say, no, identity politics in general, there's something wrong with it. Um, and I'll say that a little more precisely in a second. Um, but before I respond to it intellectually, just like a little bit of background of where I'm coming from. Uh, my family um, is from a little city in Nigeria, Abelkata, and decades ago, this was the site of radical organizing by um, an activist by the name of Fumilayo Ransom Kuti, who is um, a socialist feminist, you know, winner of the Lenin Peace Prize, you know, <laughs> big deal, right? Um, and, and part of why she won that prize, part of what she was being recognized for um, is her work starting up something that was called the Abelkata Women's Union and waging a tax revolt 
And most places you read about this tax revolt, it's called a tax revolt against the British Empire, which it was. Right? The British Empire was the colonial dominator of Nigeria at that point in time. Um, but actually, um, it would also be accurate to say it was a revolt against the traditional Yoruba king, who was seen as a kind of stooge, as a kind of accomplice with the British Empire. And that was an immensely kind of politically pivotal action in her political circumstance. That's where my mom grew up. Um, and my mom also was into politics, but not in quite as radical a direction, like with more kind of, you know, left of center, but um, not quite Lenin-esque groups, you know. I mean, Urban League is still cool, right? But it's, <laughs> you know, it's not exactly the same thing. Um, and so, on the one hand, you have this very radical use of identity politics, this very radical organizing around um, around African feminism and socialism. And on the other hand, you have this other trajectory of it, which was you know, a little more, a little friendlier to the status quo, and, and which is the real identity politics, right? All I'm telling this to you for is to say this is not an abstract question to me, right? This is one version of what I think we all have to do, which is sort out, you know, what is it that we want to inherit from the generations that came before us, politically speaking. So, um, bear with me, I'm you know, I'm, I'm literally a philosopher for, you know, there, there's going to be some abstraction, but I'm going to, you know, just, I'll try. <laughs> so, core ideas of the book. Um, so, Elite Capture is the title of the book, but what the book is about is really identity politics and trying to figure out one particular way of thinking about identity politics. So, what's identity politics is, I think, a, good first question. And I don't take myself to think anything particularly unorthodox about identity politics. More or less, the Combee River Collective statement that defined identity politics, which is queer black feminist socialists, right? Um, I, I, I just take that as my definition. I understand their way of thinking about it to just be Look, your position in society can inform your agenda and political priorities as a starting point, not necessarily as an ending point. So you should start by an analysis of your particular situation, and that could lead you to coalition, if that's where you want to take it, could lead you to other things. Um, that is not hypothetical either. That is, I take it, a pretty faithful description of how the African anti-colonial struggle went with people in different countries fighting against different colonizing empires, but doing so in a networked and connected way. Um, so the possibility of reconciling identity politics with coalitional politics is something that we've seen. It's not hypothetical. Um, but identity politics is starting from your situation. It's compatible with coalition politics. So if that's identity politics, if that's what it is, um, what's wrong with it? Because people seem to have beef with identity politics from all across the political spectrum. Um, on the far right, there's the people who think identity politics 
is inherently flawed, and of course, by identity politics, they mean our identity politics. Right? They're fine with their identities; they think they're great. <laughs> um, but if your if your goal is minority rule, then you know only some people's identities get to be legitimate to organize around politically. So I think that's that's clear enough. Um, in the center right and the center left, there is a different kind of criticism of identity politics. I think what uh, tends to win out there is a point of view where identity politics, thinking about politics from, say, a gender perspective that is critical of like anti-patriarchal or anti-transphobic or anti-racist, all these perspectives are insufficiently universal. Right? We should have this kind of... Uh, Colorblind, as they say, um, um, or you know, identity-neutral way of thinking about universal political goals and ends. And then there is a left criticism of identity politics. I thought a lot about what to call this. I'm just gonna, you know, I, a lot of people call it class reductionism, and I don't think that's quite fair. Um, so I'll just say class first left, right? Um, these people's beef with identity politics, and again, leaving aside for a second whether or not class is an identity, but um, these people's beef with identity politics is that um, identity politics has an inherently flawed focus because it is insufficiently focused on class politics. Class is the only strategically legitimate basis for solidarity, or is the most uh, strategically legitimate basis for solidarity, some version of that. Um, and so that's three different ways of getting off the boat with identity politics. Um, and then there is what I would call the class plus left. Um, and those are people who think, no, you can reconcile these things. You can think there's something important about class and you can think there's also something important about other kinds of oppression and those are uh, things we can reconcile with each other. A lot of people, hope, uh, a lot of people these days are on the class plus left, and I'm just joining that team. Um, so, what is there to say in favor of that team? I think there's, you know, a lot of um, there's a lot of good commentary on why that team is good. Um, a lot of it goes under the heading of intersectionality. Um, so, I'm not coming up with anything new here. I'm just you know, doing a, I'm just doing a different riff on an existing kind of pattern of thinking. Um, so the thing that I'm trying out in the book is saying, well, we can admit that there are problems at the level of organizing, at the level of stuff that people do in organizations with how identity politics is playing out, but we can admit that without giving up on the project of identity. You can admit that while continuing to think feminist organizing, anti-racist organizing, these are all um, plausible bases for solidarity. These are things that a, a serious left and a serious socialist left um, should take on board. And that is the title concept of the book, elite capture. Elite capture is the thing that's going wrong. So what's elite capture? Um, Elite capture is a thing social scientists have been talking about for a long time. They've been using it usually to describe actual capture of like dollars or stuff. 
So um, an aid package goes to someplace in the global south, and it's the most advantaged people in um, a village or a town that get access to those dollars. That's the kind of scenario social scientists have centrally been talking about. But they also talk about how the political projects themselves, you know, what we're trying to build with the World Bank money in the first place, um, can also be hijacked. And it's in this broader sense that I'm using this term elite capture. So elite capture for me is just how our political projects, um, like our social movements, or how public resources, which would include wealth, but also things like land and water and knowledge and attention, how those things end up being maximally responsive to the people who are already most advantaged. So the thought here is a lot like how we talk about inequality writ large. Right? It's not as though you know this country over here is unequal and that country is perfectly equal, um, or this country has elite capture and that country doesn't. It's not an on and off switch, but it's a continuum. Right? So the dynamics of how a society works might relate to how unequal things are versus whether or not there is inequality. Um, a society where one where the top 1% own 10% of the wealth and land probably works differently than a society where the top 1% own 90% of the wealth and land. Right? So the extent of inequality and the extent of elite capture are the things that we should be paying attention to and how we can um, keep both inequality and elite capture from getting you know, too far gone to the point where we can't change Elite capture itself, you could think of as a kind of practical inequality. Right? So the social system just responds to people who are well positioned in, very, in different ways than people who aren't. And over time, that becomes built into the rules of how society functions. These kinds of people um, get aid packages when their country collapses. And these kinds of people get thoughts and prayers, right? Um, the society responds differently to different people. If I predict that there is going to be a recession, maybe a couple of you might Google recession or something. Right? <laughs> um, that's as much change as we could probably expect from the social system. If Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, predicts that there's going to be a recession, then society might shift. In this case, capital might drop. The stock market might drop 5%. That's actually happened four days ago, right? So not hypothetical. Um, and what I'm trying to say in the book, the argument that I'm sketching out is this practical inequality that elite capture represents just is our social structure. It's not some separate thing. Um, I think this should be a familiar thought to uh, uh, Mark stands in the room. Um, it's a version of the base superstructure idea. Right? Um, all we need to get it going, we don't have to read all 700 pages of capital. We just, you know, we just need to, you know, realize that some advantages are convertible into other advantages. If you have a bunch of money, you can buy lobbyists. You can bribe journalists. You can endow a think tank to produce studies saying that your view of the world is true, right? You can do stuff to make the world more friendly to your point of view 
that poor people cannot do. Right? That's, that's all you need to get this thought going. And the way that I try to make this thought concrete is with the old story of the emperor who has uh, the emperor's new clothes. Um, so I'm seeing some nods, but just in case anyone doesn't know the story, the basic story is one day the emperor's advisors come in and they hold up a hanger that is empty and they say, oh, we have this special new robe that only competent and smart and wonderful people can see. Surely you can see it, your highness. <laughs> and there's obviously nothing there, but the emperor uh, falls for the trick and pretends to put on the robe, but is in fact naked and walks through town. So what happens? Everybody pretends to see it um, for a long time until um, a small child makes fun of him and then spells for <laughs> Right. Um, one of the things I'm resisting there is this view of capital and the base superstructure idea as, you know, ideological in the strong sense that's tied to beliefs. Right? We don't need to think everybody in town really believes the emperor is wearing this robe. All we need to understand is what difference it makes to seeing a naked person that that person is the emperor. Right? Um, there's all sorts of reasons. You might not want to say, I see your ass right now. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, and the point that I'm trying to make by telling that story is our practical environment the, the empire in this analogy is something that power shapes the rules of in a very literal, material kind of way. And when we understand that, we will understand why over time um, the rules of our interaction tend to reflect our power dynamics. And so finally, bringing it all home, the thing that I try to say is this whole weird abstract journey we went on with naked emperors and incentive structures, that's what happened to identity politics. You don't need any special story about why, you know, the Combi River Collective should have had some extra paragraph about, you know, surplus value or something. There's no special ideological deficit of this way of thinking from some other way of thinking. The same thing that happened to identity politics is just what happens to everything when you start with inequality and let a social system run over time. Back in the 70s, committed socialists like the black queer women of the Combe River Collective and comic book villains like Richard Nixon <laughs> were both talking about black identity issues. They were both talking about black economic self-determination. They were both talking about black power in literal material ways. They were talking about them in very different ways, very different ways, but they were both talking about them. What happens over time? Well, the Combe River Collective continues to operate in spaces like these and talk to people who are genuinely serious about trying to understand the world around them and do something about that. And the Richard Nixons of the world pay people to pretend to do that. Right? The Richard Nixons of the world have more wealth, positions on funding boards, positions of authority in strategic sites of communication like media outlets. 
They have the positions on corporate boards to hire people to do diversity, equity, and inclusion based on the Richard Nixon version of what identity and black empowerment means versus the uh, Barbara Smith version of what black economic empowerment means. And so you let that run for a few years and then which version of identity politics are people going to find in the wild of human interaction? Is it going to be the one that represents queer black socialist feminists? Or is it going to be the one with all of these strategic resource advantages over that first one? That's the whole story, I'm suggesting. Mm -hmm. Elite capture is a structural aspect of how societies work. Um, despite the story I just told you, it isn't necessarily... I, I, don't advise thinking of it as a conspiracy. Richard Nixon is a conspiracist, so you know it's a it's a tough example. Um, but you know you can imagine a different kind of actor. You can imagine you know the Gates Foundation. You know maybe they just don't hire the kind of people that take eco-feminist anarchist critiques of their practices seriously. I I don't think that they sit here like how are we going to stop these xenofeminists from informing agricultural policy. No, they don't do that. They just pick the people that more resemble their worldview because they can, and those people are more able to get their worldview out because they just got Gates Foundation money, and the people without the Gates Foundation money have a harder time. That's the beginning and end of the story. So elite capture is not a special problem, identity politics, um, class politics, is no special get-out-of-elite-capture-free card. You know, I'm sure in this room the movement memory exists to remember what a champagne socialist is or the labor aristocracy. Probably some people in here have themselves worked on movements to make unions more democratic and responsive to rank and file. You know, this is a general problem of politics. So all of that is just setting the groundwork for how we should think about identity politics, but it doesn't yet do the thing that I set out to do, right? So I wanted to defend what I think is valuable about identity politics by giving another explanation for why we're seeing, um, you know, less than solidaristic uses of identity politics in organizing spaces, but we still have to respond to those, right? We still need to, you know, think about what norms we want, how we want our socialist communities to run, and how we want to treat each other as comrades. And we have to, you know, we, we can't just stop at structural explanation of why things happen, but I think we need to respond to, in a principled way, to the people that we're in struggle with. And so one of the other major things that the book tries to do is offer this critique of identity politics gone wrong, which I uh, term deference politics. So identity politics begins with the insight that we should pay deliberate attention to our social positions when we're starting to think about our political priorities and agendas. That's again the Combi River Collective way of thinking about this. And that closely related thought is what uh, theorists call standpoint epistemology, which is just the insight that um, not only should we pay attention to our social positions when we're starting to think about our political priorities, but those same social positions also help explain what we know. So 
research agendas, organizing campaigns, they should take into account the different knowledge that different people have, partially as a result of being situated in the world in different ways. The kind of people who suffer particular kinds of violence know things about that kind of violence that other people know. And at that level of abstraction, I think that's just totally correct. Um, but there's the question of how we put that theory into practice, and not just whether or not we recognize that as being something true about the world. One strategy of converting this theory into practice is the thing that I'm calling deference politics, a strategy around deference, where we think politically, we develop instincts and habits and norms around finding the right kind of person the right kind of individual from the right kind of background or maybe even organization to defer to in conversations or interactions that we have. So if I'm in the organizing space, um, I might take the word of somebody from a marginalized group, um, especially one that's affected by an issue over my own, I might take their political judgment on as my own. Um, those people in spaces with us um, I'm referring to as, as in the room, and I and, and here's me at kind of my least philosophical, I just mean this, right? Like, we're in the room, right, with each other, and there are microphones here, and we can talk to each other, right? Um, this is something we experience in organizing spaces, and I guess on Zoom. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, whew. But, uh, yeah, but these are actual um, circumstances that we have. And the point that I raise, the criticism that I raise against this is that the system also explains who is in the room with us in the exact same way and for the exact same reasons that the empire explains how we treat the emperor, that elite capture explains what happened to identity politics. Exposure to other people, and thus exposure to other points of view, even from marginalized groups, aren't random. They're controlled by the very same system that is you know, not pressed about making itself understandable by us or accountable to us. Certain people are pipelined to PhDs, and certain people are pipelined to prisons. And it's not an accident which people end up where, and which perspectives any of us have access to in these kinds of interactions. And how that system works and how those pipelines work is disproportionately influenced by the Richard Nixons of the world, much more so than the Combe River collectives of the world. Um, I'm happy to say more about that in Q&A, uh, but for now, um, in the time that I have left, I just want to talk a little bit about you know, the kind of perennial socialist question. What is to be done? And I have somewhat um, specific things to say. Um, the ethos of the general kind of response that I talk about in the book, uh, I label with the term constructive politics. We should be building things, we should be changing the actual structures that we inhabit by, say, hosting a conference or by 
starting a magazine that lets people develop principled positions on socialist feminist issues or um, anti-racist issues, um, whatever it might be, you know, um, and, you know, the kinds of thoughts that go under the general heading base building, which we've all heard. And it's a kind of study, it's a kind of, uh, let me say this differently. More and more over the years, I have um, been increasingly appreciative of the practical wisdom of just telling, telling people to do shit. <laughs> right? Because I, you know, I would love to, you know, hot take the empire now, but <laughs> if anybody could do it, we could, right? If anyone could do it, we could, but I don't think that's how it's going to work. And, you know, in a way, the kind of hypercritical culture we've developed, which always finds something wrong with some form of organizing, is putting the cart before the horse. Like, if, if people aren't mobilized to do anything, uh, if people aren't sufficiently organized to be part of the explanation, like to be at the point of political organization where it even matters that you have the wrong opinion, um, then you know it's it's. I, I, I just wonder about that. So, you know, I see people like Marion Cabo who's just like, get involved in your community, find something helpful to do, and is not pressed about, um, is not pressed or precious about that being the particular, optimal, best possible, most left thing to do. I, I more and more am appreciative of the wisdom of that. And so I want to say that before I say anything else. <laughs> Um, but but I will say just uh, a couple more things. Um, one thing that I am also appreciative of, and this is something that I did get to talk um, for a little bit about in the book, is what uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls grassroots planning. So. Um, in Golden Gulag, which is about the rise of mass incarceration in California, there is a section of the book that talks about successful opposition to prison siting proposals in parts of California, um, including uh, Farmersville. And different people ended up working together under the banner of the United Farm Workers um, and started off with a view of why prisons suck, which is a great place to start, right? Um, prisons pollute in so many ways. They literally pollute the water. They add a bunch of occupations based on violence and add intimate partner violence and other kinds of domestic violence into communities. Um, they add carceral and policing violence. Um, but in that process, the answer that, um, or rather the question that they were getting from the state, um, the proposal the state was giving them was, here is a rural development model. We have neglected 
economic development here. We will give you a prison. And you know, if you don't accept this, where are your jobs going to come from? Right? And the people organized under UFW said, bet, that's a good question. And maybe you should not be the person who has sole answer over that. If all you can come up with is a prison. And that's where, you know, I think that's where I would like, you know, that's where I would push for politics to go, right? I think it starts with a recognition that there are particular populations, you know, uh, the black and brown working class of that area, um, you know, uh, kids, uh, people who could be in abusive relationships that have, you know, what we could think of as identity-based reasons to join this movement. But where this could go is say, no, we're going to fight to make Farmersville like this, and not just we're going to fight against a prison. I think that's in the direction of self-determination. And if that's too abstract for you, um, there's a really promising movement um, of uh, kinds of actions that are being done at various union locals. Um, we're calling it bargaining for the common good. So many of you heard of this. Um, the basic idea is that union members and community members get together to figure out what contract demands are going to be. Um, so it's usually broader than just wages and benefits for the people in the union, though those are bread and butter and have to stay where they are, but it can include other things. And they also fight for those demands together. Um, so you might remember this ethos from the Chicago Teachers Union, who's fighting for free bus passes for low-income students. Um, or United Teachers of Los Angeles, so it's fighting for more nurses and librarians. You might remember them fighting for and winning an immigration legal defense fund. And uh, an SEIU Local 26 did what Labor Notes called the first climate strike, and they were striking over the climate conditions of their work as janitors. And I think all of that is, you know, what the constructed view of politics looks like non-abstractly in terms of actual movement practice. And the more of that that we have, I think the less the appeal of the less solidaristic versions of identity politics will be. Um, so I'm looking forward to hearing what y'all have to say. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.